Well, if you did bring a Bible, please take that and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. Matthew 28. And today, we don't have time to expound the whole chapter, but we'll be looking at some highlights from this chapter. Um, And I've entitled the message simply, The Victorious Resurrection of Jesus. And thank you, John, for already reading the text for us. Now, the Gospel of Matthew is a wonderful piece of literature, as is the whole Holy Scriptures, the 66 books that we call the Bible. And Matthew 28 is just not the conclusion to some wonderful piece of literature, sort of some, uh, you know, just a, a, a resounding conclusion, but it's a powerful climax to what he has already been written. It's a central event, the resurrection of Christ, and it's the cornerstone of the Gospel. If, if there's no resurrection, Paul says in Corinthians 15, if Christ is not raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. The Apostle Paul preached the resurrection of Christ throughout the book of Acts. Look at his sermons that we have recorded in the various chapters. He mentions the resurrection all the time. It is the cornerstone of the gospel. It is central to God's all of God's redemptive history. It's vitally important. All of the gospel writers include the death and resurrection of Jesus. Some of the Gospels, there are four different uh, accounts of the same event of the life of Christ. Some include uh, uh, parables that the others don't. But there's one thing that's included in all four that is of paramount importance, and that is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Faithfully recorded has been the darkness at Gethsemane. After the Last Supper, our Savior went to the garden to pray. And as it says in Luke, he sweat as it were great drops of blood because he knew the agony that yet awaited him. And then even the darker still time of at Golgotha as he hung upon a cruel Roman cross. The mock trials had already taken place under Caiaphas, under Pilate and Herod. All of these had taken place and the cry of the people and the Jews were crucify, crucify him. That was the cry that went out. Now, you may say, this is a terrible thing. Has God somehow lost control of what he was doing? No. This was all part of the design of the atonement. It's all part of the design of the death of Christ for his people. This is not, this did not come to God by some surprise. It was all part of his plan. In Acts chapter 2, after Christ has ascended to heaven, he resurrected, appeared Ten different gospel appearances, biblical appearances, then he ascended to heaven. Just after that, Peter preaches that powerful Pentecost sermon, and he says, speaking of Jesus, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him from the dead putting an end to the agony of death, since it is impossible for him to be held by its power. Christ's resurrection from the dead in a very real way shows us that the Father was satisfied with the death of Christ. The Father was satisfied with what He accomplished on the cross. Yes, it was cruel. Yes, it was terrible. But the Father was satisfied with the payment, with the ransom that has been made by Jesus Christ. And now, 
we're going to just really just survey these first ten verses. We don't have time to unpack all of them, and I have to tell you that, that there's a lot here. Um, but we're just going to survey them. So first of all, come with me now, 2,000 years ago, to this morning. The morning after the, the Jewish Sabbath, which was Saturday, Sunday morning, very early in the morning. And in verse 1, we see that the women were the first ones to the grave. That's striking. The women were the first ones. Now, the different gospel writers say it began to dawn when this was. John says while it was still dark. And some would say, look, an inconsistency in the Word of God. No, it was some walk to get there. So perhaps they left while it was still dark. And by the time they got to the tomb, dawn had just begun to alight. Mary Magdalene, of course, is one of the central figures here. Our text says Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. If you know anything about the Gospels, Mary Magdalene was the one that Christ cast out seven devils out of. She was the one that had been delivered so much. She comes from this town, Magdalene, which is a, a, per, a perverse town, a town known of sin. And that's part of her name, is it? And it's Mary, the one from that town over there. And she's central here, and it says, and the other Mary. There was other women we know from the other gospel writers. But why did they come to the tomb? Had he not been buried, the gospel writers record that the women were there when they buried Jesus. Well, they came, according to Mark's gospel, to anoint the body of Jesus, having brought more spices to, an, to anoint the body as he lay in the tomb. Now, you might criticize the women here. You might say, well, as I read my Bible, Jesus said again and again, he will raise from the dead. He told his disciples that repeatedly. He said that publicly. He said that to the women. Well, before you criticize them, don't overlook their great love and devotion to their own Savior. They took the time. They got up early. They wanted to be the first one there. Their love and devotion to Christ certainly surpassed their lack of belief at this time. They had great courage. Remember, these are the women that, as I said, were at Calvary when Christ was crucified. These are the women that were in the garden when he was buried. And here again, they come to check on the tomb. Now, let me ask you something. Where were the disciples? Well, we know that they ran because of fear. We, there may have been some, John, we have recorded that he was near the cross. But we don't see the 11 disciples. They're gathered at the foot of the cross. They ran. They were scared. Yet the women remain by his side, so to speak. Mark's Gospel tells us that they worried about who would move the heavy stone because they saw that stone put in front of the tomb. And, of course, Matthew tells us what happened to that stone in our next verse. Behold, a severe earthquake occurred, and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat on it. That's what happened to the stone. Now, it's interesting. Notice this. An earthquake. Another earthquake. Now, if you know your Bible, every time an earthquake happens, appears, every time an earthquake happens, God is trying to get your attention. It's as though God is saying, listen, the Lord is speaking. There was an earthquake at Mount Sinai, the giving of the Ten Commandments. There was an earthquake at the cross as Christ gave up His Spirit. And that Roman soldier said what? Surely this is the Son of God. 
He confessed it. He saw it. He saw the tombs coming up out of the grave, the earthquake. So it's something we should take special note of. Now, why did the angel have to remove the stone? Kids, was this to let Jesus out of the tomb? Did the angel have to come and the earthquake, whether it's the earthquake, the angel, whatever, did, did that have to happen for Jesus to come out of the tomb? No. We know his resurrected body is a physical body, but yet it's not bound to physical limitations. We know that from the Gospel of John. When he appears to the disciples, he goes right through a door. He's there, but yet he's not bound by the limitations of a physical world. And every time there's an earthquake, isn't it scary? My wife's petrified of earthquakes. I'm sure many of you are. You know, in Italy, they just had a severe earthquake, and several have died and lost their lives. Buildings just made into rubble. Earthquakes are fearful. We should take special note when this happens. Well, let's notice the angel's appearance now. The angel's appearance is striking, as is often the case. It says in verse 3, his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. I think that speaks something to the infinite holiness of God. This is an attendant that serves the Holy One in heaven. This is the one that has come and entered time and space to come and to appear to these women. The word for lightning is the same word that's used in Revelation, speaking of the the bolts of lightning coming from the throne of God. Clothing, bright white like snow, sitting on the stone. Well, what's the response of these guards? Big Roman soldiers, cruel. They could take a mallet and a, a spike and drive it through the wrist of a man without flinching. What was the response of these cruel Roman guards? Look at the text. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The response of the guards were that they were paralyzed with fear. The same root word here is the same root of earthquake, seismos, in the original, in the Greek. And it's the same, it's the same root here that they, they seized, they quaked as though it was an earthquake deep inside their body, and they're paralyzed. They became like dead men. That was the response. And as I said, bear in mind, these are, these are, these are hardened, brutal soldiers. Roman soldiers were not like, you know, they didn't tiptoe through the daisies. These were cruel men. They had a job to do that was often very cruel. It would take much to alarm them, and yet they're alarmed. What a scene. They become like dead men. Well, what's the revelation of the angel, verses 5 to 8, very quickly? The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid. Comforting words. Balm applied to troubled hearts. These women were troubled. They're looking for their Savior. Had someone stolen the body? What's going on? There's an angel here. I still haven't seen my Lord. Where is He? And the angel comes and says, Do not be afraid. The old King James, fear not. Many times in the Bible we are told, God's people are told, Do not be afraid. Fear not. It's a wonder, They're wonderful words to hear. The women were seeking the living among the dead, and yet they would find Jesus. As the angel goes on to say, He is not here, He is risen, just as He said. 
Just as he said, he is risen. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ always keeps his word. And he said that he would rise from the dead on the third day. He said it again and again and again. And surely it has come to pass. The angel says, come, see the place. Come, I know that you're slow to believing, but come, see the tomb. It's empty. He's gone. He's risen from the dead. Come, see the place. John's Gospel tells us that the linen wrappings were were there and they were all rolled up by the head. The wrappings were left behind. And the women, unlike the Roman soldiers, find some comfort by the angel's words. Do not be afraid. Come and see. So the women have a measure of hope. They have a measure of peace. Although they have not yet seen Jesus, they still need to see Him face to face to calm their trembling hearts, to cure their saddened souls. But they have, a, they have some hope. They have some peace to press on at this point. While seeking the Lord Jesus, the good news, as I said, He has been raised. Now, who raised Jesus from the dead? That's a passive uh, in the original. Who raised Him? Well, all three persons of the Trinity had a role in raising Jesus from the dead. Did you know that? All three. The Son of God said in John chapter 10, No one has taken my life from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and to take it up again. Christ alone has the authority to do this, but yet it says of the Father that God raised Him from the dead, Acts 2. That it was the power of the Father that raised Him from the dead, Romans 6. And Romans 8.11, it says, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead will indeed give life to your mortal bodies. Well, the angel says, Go quickly and tell His disciples that He is risen from the dead. And behold, He is going ahead of you to Galilee. And there you will see Him. Behold, I have told you. Behold, I have communicated it. And so this fascination to the truth that He is risen from the dead now turns to one of proclamation. One to go tell His friends. One to go tell others. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. So the women leave quickly in obedience. But in verse 8, did you catch that when John read the text for us? They left the tomb quickly. They obeyed. They had a spirit of obedience with fear and great joy fear and great joy, and they ran to report it to the disciples. What an amazing thing. What a strange mixture. A tremendous fear, but a great joy blended together and wedded together in a very beautiful way. To have awe of who God is and and what is going on, and yet to have great joy deep down inside. Maybe a mixture of a slight bit of doubt, but with great faith that yes, indeed, He's risen from the dead. There's fear and joy mixed. But one thing is sure, there's a peace that surpasses understanding for the people of God. And they had this peace. Well, verses 9 and 10, we see the response of the women when Jesus appeared. Look with me one more time. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came and took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. Then Jesus said, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to My brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. First of all, Jesus 
met them. Jesus appeared to them. In mercy, He comes. Before, before appearing to the disciples, before appearing to anyone else, He comes to the women and appears to them and meets them to encourage them. And then Jesus greets them. Now, the NAS, it's unfortunate. It just says, and greeted them. In the Old King James, it's all hail. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful greeting of peace. In some ways, a common greeting, as though like good day or good morning. But it's one of peace that's being said here. It's actually in an imperative. There's some force behind it. The word of salutation, warm. Something that, that Christ gives to show the closeness that He has with these women. All hail. Good morning. And then the women see. It's a word of benediction. He wishes them well. A word of pacification as He prepares to say again, to repeat what the angel said, do not be afraid. Now what was the response of these women? Did they jump up and down and do some cartwheels? Now certainly they had joy. But what did they do? They fell down at His feet. These are women that have been with him for three to three and a half years, that knew him well, that ministered to them, ministered to him. Uh, Mary was one of, of some resources. The women helped to care for Jesus in very physical, tangible ways during his earthly ministry. But now there's something that's, that's radically transformed with a resurrected body. The women fall down and worship. And notice it says they fell down and took hold of his feet. Now the word there means to seize, to grab tightly, to grab something and to not let go. That's the force of the word. And I submit to you that this is one of the many proofs and many verses that we have that Jesus Christ had a resurrected body. There was something to grab. They weren't grabbing the air. Amen? Jesus Christ has risen and was there. This was no mere vision. They were not seeing things. This was not a hallucination. It was a real raised Jesus Christ in His resurrected body. And then it says that they worshipped. They worshipped. We see their fervent love, their fervent devotion to Jesus Christ as they worshipped Him. They knew for certain this was the divine Son of God. And the only proper response is one of worship. When you come face to face with the Son of God, the appropriate response is to worship Him for who He is. Has He come to you? Has He come to you through the means of His Word? Through the means of His grace? Through the means of grace? Has He come to you? And then... Notice what he says in verse 10. He comforts them and sends them. Verse 10, Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Again, repeating those words. If you didn't get it from the angel, take it to the bank from my lips. Do not be afraid. But then notice he sends them. He says, Go and take word. Go and take word to my brethren. Two commands. The same message again of the angel, but yet from the words of Christ. Uh, from the mouth of Christ and, and with different words in the original. And if there's anything we can learn from this, we have a responsibility to go and to tell others of the good news of the resurrection. And then there's something very striking. Have you seen it in verse 10? Go and take word to my brethren. 
Now these are the disciples. These are the disciples who ran scared during the arrest, who ran, most of them, from away from the cross. These are the disciples that are nowhere to be found, that heard the precious words from the mouth of Christ again and again when He told them He would raise on the third day. And yet, they were called friends, they are called disciples, but here, my brethren, a term of endearment, a term of closeness. Do you see something of the great mercy of Christ here? He calls them brethren. Well, let's draw a few concluding applications. Believers, what a joy, what a victory we have in that Christ is risen from the dead. We have victory because our sin, the power of sin, is broken. He has accomplished so much on the cross for us. He's rescued us. He's delivered us from sin. We were shackled and enslaved to sin, and yet He came in time and space and paid the ransom that that we owed, but then the Holy Spirit effectually calling us in time, transforming our hearts that the things that we used to love, we now hate. And we love the very things that we used to hate. We find joy in serving Him and loving Him. We have happy communion with Him, as we have in the Bible says, union with Christ. There's nothing more precious than having a Savior, having a high priest that you can go to at any time and to go and to lay out your burdens and to know, according to Hebrews 4.15, that He understands and sympathizes with you no matter what you are going through. Brothers and sisters, we have a responsibility to take this treasure to a lost world, a world that is despairing, a world that, that is dying, a world that is often committing suicide and just destroying their bodies, destroying their families, destruction, destruction, and to take the good news that you can be liberated from your sin if you will become to Christ. Some of you today have difficulty and trial, and we need to be reminded that God is sovereign and He is in control. We need to be reminded that whatever, how big our problems seem, and maybe they're as as big as that boulder was, as big as that huge stone was to block the tomb, maybe they're that big, maybe our problems are that difficult, yet they're but a grain of sand to the Son of God. He can remove the burden of your trial. He can ease the burden of your trial. Many today doubt the truth of the resurrection. They remain scoffers, actually, It's not in our text, but just look down at the end of verse 12 and 13. What happens is the guards go on their way to the city. They report to the chief priest. And in verse 12, And when they assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole them away while you were asleep. Now, what? think about that for a minute. Is that the silliest is that the silliest thing? If this doesn't add some measure of proof that this is the best you can come up how did they know that the disciples stole it away if they were asleep? It's just folly, it's foolhardy. But yet there are many scoffers still today. By the way, it was for money that Christ was betrayed when Judas took those thirty pieces of silver. And it's for money that the enemies of the cross try to hide the glorious truth of the resurrection. Jesus said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even though he dies. And maybe you have never thought that if Christ is raised and he's conquered death, 
that He is indeed coming again to judge the world. And so we have to ask the question, how can you be ready? You see, there's no second chances. The idea of some purgatory or the idea of some you know, middle-of-the-road thing that you can atone for your sins somehow after you die is a lie. The minute we take our last breath on earth, we are in eternity and our eternal destiny is sealed forever. May I say, dear friends, the best way to prepare for death in that time that you will stand before God is to make adequate preparations in this life. That's when you need to deal with this. It's much like building or buying life insurance. I personally own life insurance because if I die, I would like my family taken care of. In the same way, we will give an account before God, and so we need to think beforehand. We don't wait until it's too late. And we have dealings with God. We will give an account before God of how we've lived our life. We are responsible for our actions. It says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We will each one give an account in that day. What a shocking time that will be for some. What a dreadful time to have your sins laid out in plain view before the Holy Son of God. And then to hear the sentence of eternal punishment in hell. Well, it doesn't have to be that way. How can you be made acceptable to God? God has made provision in His Word. Remember, we have this problem called sin, because we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Each one here has certainly sinned before God. It's a disease. It's like the plague. It will kill us. It will send us to hell if we don't take the remedy. We must have the remedy for this disease. We're all born as sinners. Ever since Adam fell in the garden, we're brought forth in iniquity, King David says. We're sinners by practice. And I'm quite confident that each one here today would admit that at some point we've told a lie. At some point we've lusted in a carnal way, in a sinful way. At some point we've done something to violate God's holy law. And even if it's telling a white lie, the Word of God says if you violate the law, and that's the ninth commandment, in any area, you're guilty of it all. God does not grade on a scale. If we're guilty of any part of the law, we are guilty. So our sin must be dealt with. God is holy. He can't allow sin in His presence. And so there needs to be a remedy applied. If there were any other way, do you think the Father would have really sent His one and only Son to the cross? If there was some other way, if there was some shortcut, but there is not, Christ prayed three times in the garden, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass for me. What cup? The cup of divine wrath being poured upon Jesus Himself by His Father. There was no other way. In fact, before the birth of Christ, the angel told Gabriel that she will bear a son, speaking of Mary, you will call his name Jesus, and what's the purpose of his coming? He will save his people from their sins. Jesus himself said, the Son of Man did not come to be served. I mean, if a king comes, wouldn't you roll out the red carpets and all of that? But no, he didn't come to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. And my dear friends, he has paid that ransom. The ransom has been paid for unworthy sinners and everyone that will repent of their sins. What is repent? Just turn away from. 
to do an about face from, and then to believe and to trust, that is to lay hold like the women did of Christ's feet, to lay hold of Him by faith, that He's a suitable Savior, that I believe He's paid for my sins, you will be saved. You children here today, some of you from strong Christian families, that will not get you into heaven. You must repent. You must believe for yourself. And if you continue on, the danger is, <clears throat> is that you harden your heart because you hear the gospel so many times. And then you just begin, oh, there's that gospel presentation again. Mommy and Daddy's a believer. I'll be fine. No! You must repent and believe for yourself. Come to Christ. Faith in Christ and trust in His death and the victorious resurrection are what is required. <clears throat> John 3.16 about everybody probably knows this verse certainly has heard it for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life salvation is a free gift if you could buy it it would be nullified it is not something you can go out and buy on eBay or Kmart or Walmart or even Nordstrom's it's something that is free it's a free gift of God Romans 3.20 By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. If somehow you could earn salvation by your good works, that would be the grace of God would be nullified. It says by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. So forget about good works. Forget about living, just trying to live a really good life and an upright moral life without trusting Christ. It will land you into hell. We can't earn our way to heaven by being a good person. You need the blood of Christ applied to you. Christ's death is senseless. If we could just be good people and somehow go to heaven, wouldn't that be just wonderful? But it's not the case. We have this plague called sin. And the only thing that removes our sin is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Just as the Passover lamb prefigured that lamb of a, that the blood of a spotless lamb, that blood was taken and applied to the doorpost, so too his blood is applied to each and every child of God who trusts in him. Can I tell you something? If one percent of my salvation depended on me, I would be in hell. If one percent, if if point one thousandths of one percent depended on us, we would fail. It is all His work. Yes, we believe. Yes, we repent. But it's all His work. He has secured it. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. You see, it's the grace of God. But it's through the vehicle of faith. And that is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. So the free offer of the Gospel is simply this. Whosoever will, let him come. We proclaim the gospel to every person, anywhere and everywhere, in our workplace, in our families, in our, our distant families. Everyone we come into contact with, we tell them the good news of the gospel. But it, it's whosoever will. But yet, so many harden their hearts. So many say, I don't need that. I witnessed to a Muslim lady, a about a 30-year-old white woman that has converted to becoming a Muslim six years ago. And I kept asking her, but what about your sin? 
How do you deal with your sin? Well, we have our prayers and then we feel good about ourselves, was her answer. Having prayers and feeling good about yourself is not enough. She said, I need that structure to go and have those regular prayers. I need that structure that's putting confidence in the flesh and not looking to Christ. We have to get to the point where I can't save myself, but Jesus, you're an all-sufficient Savior. You're, you're victorious. You, you've, you've proved it by your resurrection, and I cast my all upon you, and I trust you. John 7, Jesus said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Again, if anyone, if anyone is thirsty, come to him and drink. How I pray that the Lord would work in each and every heart here to encourage and to strengthen those of us who are in Christ of the great truth that the resurrection is real and it has happened, that Jesus is a victorious Savior. He's accomplished all. And then if any do not know Him, that today might be the day of salvation, relinquishing the suitcases of your good works and coming to Him and confessing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling, casting all our confidence upon Him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much for the glorious Gospel. We thank You that it is free. We thank You that it is efficient. And Lord, we pray that You would have Your work here even this very day in each and every heart. We thank You that we can celebrate like this. In Jesus' name, Amen.